Thank you very much, Butch and Pam. Our text today is going to be from Mark 11. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 21. And follow along with me on the screen behind me as I read. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Thank you very much, Butch and Pam, for leading us in worship this morning. We are very grateful for that and what preparation for our souls that was. We will continue to be further ministered to in our souls through the preaching of the Word of God now. In order to have this be most effective, would you please bow with me as we pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, I want to ask that you would please teach us what you meant to teach the disciples, Lord, in the cursing of the fig tree. Lord, help us to learn this lesson as well. And Lord, I want to ask that your spirit would do his job in taking the truths of the word of God into the hearts of all of those who can hear my voice this morning. I pray, of course, that you would help me to be faithful in preaching this text rightly And Lord, please use it to draw sinners to yourself. And please use it to further build up the church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're like me, um, you like, well, you've seen, first of all, and you like the old movie called The Sound of Music. I'm sure you've seen it. If you haven't, well, you need to see it. It's good. And it's just an old classic. You might remember that Maria, the star in it, uh, she was in the process of becoming a nun, remember? But she didn't quite fit into that world very well, did she? She was free-spirited and very curious, and it often got her in trouble. Well, there was a family, the Von Trapp family, needed help with their seven children. And she was, I believe, volunteered for that job. And in the movie, you recall that eventually, uh, not only the children, but also Captain Von Trapp himself uh, fell in love with Maria. And in the middle of the movie, uh, there's sort of a climactic moment when Maria is getting married to Captain Von Trapp. 
And they zoom in on Maria, and she's all pretty in her wedding dress. And you can even see the nuns have attended the, the wedding. And they zoom in on Captain Von Trapp. He's all dressed up in his military attire. And they join hands, and they walk up the steps, and they kneel in front of the priest. And then the camera pans up to show the large and beautiful ornate ceiling of the Catholic Church. And then the camera pans out and shows the church with those beautiful Austrian mountains in the background. And there's the happy sounds of the wedding bells clanging, clanging, clanging. And then, if you've seen the movie, you remember those happy bells change from and fade into the long and low gong, gong of the bells ringing because now we move months into the future and the Nazis have invaded Austria. That is the point in the movie where it takes a much more serious tone from the rest of the movie there on out, doesn't it? And if you've been reading all the way through Mark, you would have noticed, you would have noticed that a change happens in the narrative of Mark's gospel, and it happens in our chapter. It happens in chapter 11, and it not only happens in our chapter, it happens in the very text we're looking at today. The gospel of Mark, from this point on, takes a much more serious tone. Much more serious in tone, of course, not because of any Nazis invading, but because Jesus coming into Jerusalem and encountering head-on all the powers that hate him and seek to destroy him, not only the physical ones, but the spiritual ones as well. So the mood of our book takes a more serious tone today. Jesus cursing the fig tree, angrily chasing people out of the court of the temple. Now, we're also going to see later on in the book, as that serious tone continues on, the Jewish leaders uh, insistent on trapping Jesus in his words. We're also going to see Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple in chapter 13, uh, not to mention the plot to kill Jesus, his betrayal, his wrongful trial, and of course, his death. And this is where all that starts. Today, the text that we are covering. To start it off, we have a miracle of Jesus that many have deemed controversial, which is why I've titled the message this morning, Jesus' Only Miracle of Destruction. And that's true. All of Jesus' miracles that we see in his entire life are to heal or to restore or to feed, things like that. This is the only miracle he does that's actually a miracle of destruction. Now, those who are critical of the Jesus that's portrayed in the scriptures, those who also are enemies of Christianity, have had different things to say about this exact miracle. It's been a point of contention. Listen to what one gentleman, a Jewish historian, his name is Joseph Klosner, said. He called this miracle, he said, it's a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. Another gentleman, T.W. Manson, said, This is a tale of miraculous power wasted. 
in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more useful expanded in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And then, of course, another gentleman, uh, you may have heard of him. He's an atheistic philosopher. His name, his name is Bertrand Russell, very outspoken in his hatred of Christianity. He says, this, this, this show, show, shows vindictive fury on Jesus' part. Now, was our Lord Jesus here, was he acting like a child, throwing a temper tantrum because he didn't get what he wanted from the fig tree? Is that indeed what's going on? Did he do something wrong with his divine power when he cursed the fig tree? I want to show you today that the narrative of the fig tree recorded before and after what happened in the temple is because the fig tree is indeed what we would call an object lesson. Just like some of the prophets of old, like I believe it was Micah with the plumb line. There's also a prophet in Paul's day that uses Paul's own belt to tie his hands up and says, the owner of this belt will be tied up like this. Prophets sometimes used object lessons. And Jesus, being the most perfect prophet, he is prophet, priest, and king, as you know, uses an object lesson as well of a fig tree. The narrative of the fig tree is a visual parable of our Lord's judgment on two things the hypocrisy, and the fruitlessness of those who claim to be God's followers. I want to say it again. It's our Lord's judgment on the hypocrisy and fruitlessness of those who claimed to be God's followers. A visual parable, an object lesson. And I want to try to prove that to you today. I don't want you to just take my word for it. So let's start off in verse 12. What do we find in verse 12? Because that's where we start. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. On the following day of what? On the following day of the triumphal entry. Remember? This is definitely a change in the narrative because what did we just come from? Just like Maria and Captain Von Trapp were at the wedding and then it changed. What do we see just prior to this? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That just happened in the the paragraph right before this. Now, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem. He's leaving Bethany. And the text says, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus Christ is a man. He's also God. He experienced real hunger, just like on the cross when he said, I thirst. He experienced real hunger thirst, just like when he met the woman at the well, why did he stop there? It said being wearied out from his journey, he really got tired too. And just like he was able to sleep during a storm on a boat that many professional fishermen said, we're we're dead. We are going to die. He was able to sleep through it because he was that tired after a full day of teaching and miracles. He was a real man who really got hungry. Why am I laboring this point? He knows what it's like 
to experience the things that you're going through. Jesus Christ is a merciful high priest because he's been where you are. He knows what you're going through and he's able to sympathize with you. So Christian, listening to my voice, I want to let you know you have a high priest who understands your struggles. Isn't that encouraging? Have you ever laid out your heart to someone and maybe something that was very even embarrassing made you feel like a fool and a loser and the person looks at you and says, I understand. I struggle with that too. You know how you feel in that moment? You feel so encouraged. Like I can get through this. Here I was thinking I was the lone loser on planet earth and now I understand that someone understands me. And now I feel like I can go on because this person's gonna help me. And that's what you find in the Lord Jesus. Christian, be encouraged. Jesus was hungry. He knows what it's like to go through your struggles as well. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. So Jesus looks for a way to satisfy his hunger, his hunger, and he eyes this fig tree from a distance with leaves on it. Now, in the study that I've been doing on fig trees this week, because I'm not also a botanist, I learned that when fig trees have leaves, that they also have at least buds of figs. Jesus, though it wasn't the season for figs, as we're told here, because it does sound crazy, doesn't it? It wasn't the season for figs, but yet Jesus curses this fig tree for not having any figs. And we say, what gives? I don't understand. That makes no sense to me. Well, there are a few theories, and it's, one here is that he would have, have at least found these little green buds of figs Though they were small, though they were green, though they were much less tasty, they were still edible. And some people did eat them. When we used to live in Belize, as missionaries, there were so many mango trees. They were everywhere. But they came in and out of season, of course. Well, once they started growing, the little children on our street would get so excited that they were seeing anything on that tree at all, they would start pitching rocks up at these mangoes that weren't even close to being ready to eat, but they couldn't stand it. They wanted them so badly. They would eat them green, but you could sprinkle salt and lime on them green, and they were really good, and that's what they did. So these were similar. You could still eat them, but Jesus, coming there, found not even the small, green, edible buds. What did Jesus find? He found nothing. What he finds is a a tree promising one thing because it had leaves. These trees, if they had leaves at all, they were also having buds. So he finds a tree promising, hey, look, see my leaves? That means I've got something for you. It was promising one thing, but producing nothing. The outward appearance was saying, look, there's evidence of something here. But when actually investigated, it 
was false. There was no fruit. This is a picture of what Israel had become, especially the Jewish religious leaders and everything under their care. They had the appearance of godliness. But as you recall, some of Jesus' most scathing words were against the religious hypocrites of his day. Remember what he said about them. Here's just one example. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus said to them, woe to you, by the way, a woe is the opposite of a blessing. A woe is a curse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He saw through their facade. He saw through their beautiful exterior and right into their heart. And what he saw was death and decay. One accusation that's often hurled at the church is that the church is full of what? Hypocrites. It's full of hypocrites. Now, it's true that the church is full of people who are sinful. This is actually the only institution I know of on planet Earth where being a sinner is a prerequisite for joining. You have to be a loser to get on our team. That's just the truth. You have to be a loser and know you're a loser in order to know that you need the Savior. Otherwise, what's he saving you from, right? So yes, it is true. The church is full of people who sin. That is true. But there's also another truth. Though all hypocrites are sinners, not all sinners are hypocrites, right? Hypocrisy, hypocrisy is one specific sin among many sins. Hypocrisy is the sin of saying, I don't do that, I'm not like that, when secretly you are doing those things and you are like that. And it's on purpose. It's purposefully saying, that's shameful, and then doing it secretly, knowing full well that you do it. That's the sin of of hypocrisy. It's a specific sin. So though all hypocrites are sinners, not all sinners are hypocrites. We, as believers, we sometimes feel that we have to portray that we have a higher level of sanctification, a a higher level of purity than we actually have. We, We feel sometimes that need as soon as we walk through those doors into any church sanctuary. We sometimes feel the temptation to portray, look, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually pretty holy. Look, I, I, don't, I don't have too many problems. <laughs> when the truth is, we do have problems. I have problems. You have problems. I have struggles. You have struggles. I have things that trigger me. You have things that trigger you. And that's just the truth, right? I'm going to tell you this. I am more impressed by a Christian 
who, when he or she sins, says, gosh, I shouldn't have done that. I feel bad about that. I'm gonna keep short accounts with God here. I'm gonna confess my sin because I feel this distance that this sin has just created between me and God. I don't like it. I feel dirty. I feel bad. I wanna confess that sin, make it right with God. And then I also wanna go to that person who I've sinned against and say, I shouldn't have acted like that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? That really impresses me. I love to see that because that shows me someone who's actually real, who's a real true Christian, because that's the real life of a Christian, is it not? Hasn't your last week been like that? Mine has. I'm pretty sure if we did a survey, no one would pass the test of, I have not sinned in a seven whole days. No, I'm not sure I'd go seven minutes without sinning, well, except when I'm sleeping, okay? I mean, if you could actually see, if you could actually see every thought and intention that went through your heart and mind laid out, drawn, you would say, oh gosh, oh gosh, how embarrassing. So listen, the Lord Jesus is looking for fruitfulness and not a show. He wants you to just be honest with him, and ask him for help. That's what he likes. You ask for the help, you get the help. You get the help, he gets the glory. I am so much more impressed when I see Christians living like that. Instead of living like they've got to put on a show, I don't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. And I hope I've made an environment here at our church, I hope we have made an environment here at our church where people know we're not looking for a facade we're looking for real messed up Christians <laughs> and real messed up people who aren't Christians who want to become Christians. That's what Jesus is looking for too. Aren't you glad? I am. I'm so thankful for an understanding Savior. So what did Jesus find? He found hypocrisy. That one specific sin we were talking about he found it there among the religious leaders, and he clearly doesn't care about performances. He's looking for genuine followers. Now, concerning our text, it was no accident that Jesus chose the object lesson of the fig tree. That was not on accident. That wasn't just happenstance. That wasn't coincidence. In Jeremiah and also in Joel, the Lord has compared Israel to a fig tree. This was intentional. This was very intentional. The fig tree was seen and cursed before entering the temple, and it was cleansed because the fig tree represented Israel, who was promising one thing but delivering nothing. Look at verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Can we show that image that I've got of the temple? Um, I want to show you all the area that we're talking about here, 
the Gentiles were allowed in this area. This was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, it, it may have expanded to this area out here as well. In my studies, I couldn't find specifically if it did or not, but I know for sure that this inner part right here, this is called the court of the Gentiles, and this is where this would have taken place, all in here. This is a separation that the Gentiles could not pass through. The Gentiles were allowed to worship the one true God. They were allowed to convert over to um, Judaism, but there were still uh, separations back in that day. That's probably why uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about that the dividing wall has been taken down, possibly a reference to that. Jesus Christ has brought down that wall of division. So where this is all happening is in the court of the Gentiles. Notice that he says he overturned their tables. He didn't let anyone walk through. Some, some people would take shortcuts. If they're passing from one part to the other, they would just take a shortcut through that portion, the court of the Gentiles, because it was shorter. But Jesus was saying, no, this is holy ground. This is to be considered as holy. This is not for your convenience. This is for your conversion. This is not for you to save time. This area is for the saving of the soul. This is where you enter near into the presence of the holy God. And is God serious about holy ground? Well, of course he is. Moses had to take off his sandals. And so that's why Jesus, we see in verse 16, if you were saying, why didn't he allow anyone to carry anything through the temple? What I don't understand. Well, that's what it is. There was this lack of reverence. So the court of the Gentiles had been turned into a marketplace, a stockyard. And Passover was a feast of obligation. We studied the feast last year, all the feasts last year, as you might recall. Um, there were certain feasts of obligation, meaning you had to go to the temple for this feast. And this was, this was one of them. I would say this is the primary one. Now, when it comes to um, feast of obligation, two problems arise for travelers. The first one being that the Passover required uh, specific uh, sacrifices, especially, as you guys recall, the, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Now, traveling any distance in that day um, would be laborsome, would be hard. Then add trying to bring animals with you on that journey. If you've ever even made a journey with your domesticated pet, you know that even that brings some of its own <laughs> interesting problems, especially like us if you have a dog that gets car sick, which you find out by taking the dog on a trip, of course, and then cleaning up throw up. <laughs> so bringing animals is, is, is difficult on any trip. So this required, this made it so that people had to purchase the required sacrifices once they arrived. It's been said that the prices for these animals were inflated as much as 16 times the regular price to these people that would come to Jerusalem during the Passover. 16 times the regular price. The second problem is this. Just like you and I have to exchange our U.S. dollars if we're going to be traveling to another country that doesn't share our currency. As you know, whenever you go to exchange your money for euros or whatever it might be, 
there's always something called an exchange fee. You know that fee? You hand whoever a thousand U.S. dollars, and you get back all this money back in this other country's currency that, that looks like a lot of money, but then you realize, hey, wait a second, this is only equal to about $950, and that's the convenience that we have in our day. This is the exchange fee. Well, the exchange fee was outrageous in that day. It wasn't just an exchange fee. You would call it downright greed, manipulation, and extortion. And that greed and extortion had replaced what was supposed to be a time of devotion. This corruption of holy things was not new. And guess what? It didn't end that day either. Um, Listen to what Martin Luther said. He wrote this back in 1520. He said... The Roman church, once the holiest of all, has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It's so bad that even Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to its wickedness. That's what Martin Luther said about the Catholic church in his day, which is why he saw the need for a reformation. He wanted to try to reform the Catholic Church. Well, as you know, the Catholic Church had nothing, would have nothing of it. And so that's why what was birthed out of that movement was a, a protest that later became Protestantism. That's why we're called Protestants, because we were birthed out of that protest against the corrupt Catholic Church of the day. And of course, as you know, unfortunately, there is still a facade of holiness in some churches. There's still a promise. There's still leaves that say, look, there is fruit here. And further investigated, there's fruitlessness. And that's always going to be the case until Jesus comes back. But we, Lord willing, with God's help, will be found fruitful when our Lord returns. Amen? With his help. So this is nothing new. It didn't end that day. It's still going. But Jesus has passed the torch on to us, of course, to be that holy, purifying influence in the world. That's why he called us salt and light in a city on a hill. So what Jesus found when he walked into the temple area that day was extortion instead of devotion. Jesus... Zealous for his father's glory, Jesus, burning with a passion of purity, restored the glory, restored the purity of the temple that day, albeit temporarily. It was still a glimpse of what he will do when he returns one day with the holy angels and all the saints. He will purge away all un. Righteousness with great fury and anger. We, and we were missionaries also. I once read a bumper sticker on a car there in Belize. And the sticker said, God is not angry at you. God's not angry at you is what it said. And I thought for a second, I thought, 
What about if a child molester reads that? What if a, what if a, a man who abuses his spouse reads that? What if an adulterer reads that? Is it, is it true? Is it true for everyone who reads it? No. It's not even biblical. My Bible says the Lord is angry with the wicked all day long. God will stamp out wickedness wherever it's found one day for sure. Now that bumper sticker is true of some people. It is true of the righteous. It is true of those who've turned away from their sins and put their faith and trust into Jesus Christ, believing that what he did on the cross, shedding his blood, dying to take the wrath of God on their behalf, and then rising again from the dead, believing that that is all that's needed for a sinner to be saved. It's true for those people. He's not angry with them, not anymore. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 31. But this day, this day, that bumper sticker was not true. Jesus was angry. I remember when I was a little boy seeing a picture in the church that I was attending at that time. Valley View Baptist Church is what it was called. I still remember it. It's in Leeds. still there. I don't know if the picture's still there. There was a picture on the wall of Jesus overturning the tables with a whip. And I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, heavens, that's, that's not right. <laughs> that's, that's not the Jesus that I just learned about in Sunday school. <laughs> but then I read my Bible, and I see that Jesus does have a righteous anger. And it's, by, by saying that it's righteous, what I mean is it's right, and it's good. And then look what Jesus says after he does those things. Look at verse 17. He was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Now that phrase there, for all nations, this is very important. Very important here. Where was this happening in the temple? Remember the area I just showed you? It was called the court of who? The Gentiles. This was happening in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the, all the nations. That means not just the Jews, the Gentiles as well. Long ago, the Lord had called the first Jew, the man named Abraham. And he called Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. The Jews were to be that light for all the nations. That's why the book of Jonah is so scandalous because Jonah was supposed to have a heart's concern for the nations, and he didn't. He was supposed to be reaching out to the nations with this message of forgiveness, and he said, no, I'm not doing that. That's why it was so bad what he did, and Israel had the responsibility and privilege to reach out to the nations as well, and there was a, a place at the temple specifically made for those people that we call proselytes, meaning they are not Jews, but they've turned to the way of Yahweh. They've, they've turned to following the one true God. There was, a, there, was a, there was a place made just for them. But there was a popular view circulating in Jesus' day among the Jews that when the Messiah comes, he will cast out all Gentiles from the temple. That's what a lot of the Jews in that day believed the Messiah would do. Cast out all 
the Gentiles from the temple area. But what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus cleansing the temple for the Gentiles. Not casting out the Gentiles, but cleansing the temple for the Gentiles. It was a place for all men, not animals. In the year uh, AD 66, the Jewish historian, maybe you've heard of him, his name is Josephus, he recorded that on the Passover in the year of AD 66, that there were 255,000 lambs sacrificed that Passover. 255,000. You, you see this number in your head, right? Two. Five, five, comma, zero, zero, zero. That many lambs sacrificed at that Passover. There was a huge number of people arriving to fulfill, or at least outwardly fulfill, their devotion to God. It was massive, the amount of sacrifices, the amount of money. But Jesus made it clear it had all become a show. It was just a front of godliness that in reality displayed fruitlessness. Well, the next day, we see in our text here that the disciples left. And in verses 22, I'm sorry, 20 and 21 rather, it says this. As they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered in a day's time. We're almost done here, guys. Listen to this. So the twelve, they see that the tree indeed had been cursed by Jesus. They, they, they heard him say that. The text makes very clear that they heard him say this to the tree. And the very next day, the very next morning, they see this tree withered, never to bear fruit again, because it says that it was uh, withered away to its roots. What that means is, it's not just like, let's say you have a house plant. You don't water that, water that house plant for like two or three days. If, you've, if you're like me, you've kind of got this gift of, of murdering house plants. Well, you know if, if you don't water it for two or three days, it starts to wilt a little bit. The, the leaves start to curl. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about house plant three months later without water. That's what we're talking about. Brown, dead. In less than 24 hours, to its root. This tree at this point was only good to be cut down and thrown into a fire at this point. It was, it was just firewood now. There was no resurrecting it. There's no, let's just put some more water on it. It was gone. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection here? The fig tree is cursed, and so was the nation of Israel. Why? Because the heart of their devotion was an exercise in hypocrisy, and it was void of any real fruit in God's eyes. So how, I'm going to end with this, so how can you and I avoid such a fate. Because we, we see this, right? And we see that it's great error. 
naturally, as followers of God, we would want to say, well, how do I not do that? (laughs) I don't want Jesus to look at my life and say, I see nothing there. Zero fruit. Sure, you attend. Sure, you tip your hat to God. Sure, you do these things. But when I look at your life, I see emptiness. We don't want that. I don't want that. So how do we avoid this? Oh, thank the Lord he's already given us all that we need in order to avoid going the way of Israel in Jesus' day. Look on the screen behind me. Look at John 15, 4 through 11. And we'll end with this. I'm going to read these verses to us because this is the key. This is, this is how we do it. And praise God. He's given us all that we need for life and godliness. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown to the fire, and burned. Sound familiar? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you ask whatever you wish and it, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. You see that? According to that text, what proves that we're his disciples? Fruit. Verse 9 is, The Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that, and this is amazing, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. How joyous do you think Jesus is? You think he's a pretty joyous guy? (laughs) I know no one more joyous than God. And Jesus says, if we do these things, his joy abides in us, and our joy is full. You see what Jesus wants for you? Fullness of joy, bearing fruit, through being connected to that vine, that's how we have fullness of joy. You feeling a little joyless this morning? I just gave you the key. I just gave you the key. I know I said I was going to end with this. Let me end with this. Pastors do this all the time, don't we? We say, in conclusion, and then you're like, okay, 30 minutes later. No, but I I do want to say this. As I was putting some of the final touches on my sermon this morning, I thought about this. I thought, about, um, I thought about how much I love my little church. I want to just let you guys know that I'm so thankful to be serving you in this way. I want to let you know that one of the ways that I try to show you how much I love you is by trying to be as faithful as I can to the Word of God and so I want to let you know, every sermon I preach to you, in my mind, it's, it's a gift that I'm trying to give you to show you how much I love you. And I'm just touched 
um, to be your pastor. And I just felt that I needed to let you all know that this morning. So um, God bless you, and let's, let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for the fact that we have your word, so thankful. And I pray, please, Lord, use it in my heart. Use it in the heart of my little church here. Use it in the heart of those listening online. I pray, Lord, that you would please help us to bear fruit. And so prove to be your disciples. Help us abide in you. Draw our life from you just as the branch draws the sap from the root to give it life. Lord, help us to walk uprightly by walking according to your will, according to your word. So that when you return, you'll find a church holy, ready for your return, pleasing in your eyes. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.